seated. invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. And the words to which I would call your attention this morning come to us from Mark 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. This is the trial of Jesus. It was virtually a 24-hour trial, as it were, all through the night. As we read God's Word this morning, we remember that it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is authoritative, and it is sufficient to teach us all we need to know for faith and life. Let's give attention to it now. And as soon as it was morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord in heaven, We acknowledge that these words have power. They are powerful in and through the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would cause them this morning to grip our hearts. Grip our hearts at the marvel of your plan for our deliverance. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Some time ago, I came across a story about a man by the name of Andrew Mallard. Uh, you might have heard his name before. He, there's been an entire documentary about Andrew Mallard, uh, not just because his name is interesting. Uh, but in 1995, in Australia, he was uh, arrested for murder. He was tried, and he was convicted of murder. And he spent some eight or nine years in prison... 
12 years actually, until the year 2007 when he was released. Can you imagine spending 12 years in prison having been convicted for a crime that you actually did not commit? They determined that Andrew Mallard was innocent. All that time in prison, he was totally innocent of the charges brought against him. And it took additional evidence to free him from prison. Maybe if you're like me, I would have spent those years uh, uh, trying to channel Charles Bronson or Liam Neeson, thinking about what I was going to do to those who had convicted me of this crime falsely. Vengeance would be on my mind. We think also perhaps of Joseph, who spent at least two years in an Egyptian prison. Why? Because his brothers were jealous of him and they threw him in that prison. It's a remarkable thing that Joseph comes out and he is exclaiming the name of the Lord in those moments. Do you know why we look upon things like that and we say, that's unjust that should not have happened. That was, that was a miscarriage of justice. Well, we look upon those things and we say that's unjust because we're made in God's image. He, he has made you as a moral creature. And, and you know right from wrong. And you know that a man like Andrew Mallard should never be convicted and imprisoned for something that he didn't do. You say that's wrong because you are image bearers of God. We demand personal justice. If you cut me off in traffic, I want something bad to happen to you. As you read Mark 15, verses 1 through 15, I hope that you read it and that your heart is rent. This is, this is a total miscarriage of justice. How could you take a man like Jesus... And run him through a kangaroo court. This is a total miscarriage of justice. Anybody could look at this and say, something ain't right here. And you ought to. Mark, in every way that he has recorded it for, for you, wants you to be revolted at these events. If I'd have been Pilate, this would not have happened. Even if you reject the entire message of Christ, you can agree that this is an unjust trial. And then you have to scratch your head and wonder, why? Why could the people and the governor and the priests, the religious leaders at this time, be filled with such hatred and animosity toward this man? Don't you at least ask that question? Well, Mark answers you. He's put every clue in the text to show you that Jesus in this scene offered himself as a lamb to the slaughter in order to take the place of guilty men. This entire scene is recorded for you so that you would see that Jesus offered himself as a lamb to the slaughter in order to obtain the release of guilty men. First of all, notice with me in verses 1 through 5 that Jesus submitted as the lamb of God led to slaughter. Jesus submitted 
as the Lamb of God led to slaughter. Mark records a very poignant scene. If you have ever compared Mark to the other evangelists, one of the things that you know about him is he's very succinct. He, he moves along. It's the shortest gospel. He's trying to capture everything in the shortest uh, time possible. Some believe that Mark was the first writer sitting under Pe- at Peter's feet, learning from Peter as he preached to him, the apostle, and then setting all of his words down just as he had witnessed them. But there are moments, there are moments in Mark's gospel where he stops going quickly and he slows down and he begins to give you colorful pictures. For instance, it is only Mark who tells us that the grass was green when Jesus fed the 5,000. And here is one of those moments when Mark slows down. And he says, let's let's take just a little bit of time here. Let's look at what's happening. And he points to us, or points us to the fact in verses 1 through 5, that Jesus is led as a lamb of God to slaughter. Notice when, when this begins, verse 1 of chapter 15, and as soon as it was morning. Listen, in the Greek, the sun hasn't even come up yet. The, the high priests, if we were to go back to chapter 14, what we find is they have met all night with Jesus. Now this was against uh, the old covenant law. But they held a trial in the middle of the night, and it was in the middle of the night that they are pulling out his beard, that they are spitting upon him. And as soon as it was roughly 3 a.m. the next morning, they have hatched a plan, the entire Sanhedrin, and they have determined to lead Jesus away and to have him convicted. Now, this is important because the, uh, the Jews at that time, they had some liberty in their trials. They would go into their synagogues and they could have a trial. They would have a prosecutor and they would have defendants. And the priests would deliver a verdict in the synagogue. They might have a man beaten. They would deliver a sentence. But Roman law prevented them from carrying out one particular sentence. They could not pursue capital punishment. They had to have Pilate. And so they bring him to Pilate very early in the morning. One of the things that Matthew Henry in his commentary observes about this, listen well. He says, notice from this text that evil men rise early to make their plans for evil. How much more should the righteous rise early to make their plans to do good? The whole Sanhedrin, you can kind of see this picture in your mind, can't you? They are traipsing through Jerusalem in order to bring Jesus to Pilate. They arrive at the palace and they are calling out perhaps, asking for Pilate to come forth. And and he does. He answers them. Uh, Pilate is one who's very interested in making sure that the town stays peaceful. He wants to remain in power. He's seen men before him who've been removed from power. And he wants to be a faithful governor to keep the people pleased. He comes out and he listens. And on the one hand, he has the Christ. And on the other hand, he has this mob of men. Listen. This mob of men whose entire role 
has been given to them by God Most High in order to serve the people, to minister the law, to teach them of the grace and the love and the kindness of God. And here they are, vigorously accusing this man. And, and Pilate stands there and wonder, doesn't he? Look at the text. Pilate, he turned to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked you, asked him, have you no answer to make? It, literally, there's a, there's a double negative in, in his question. He said, are you not going to answer nothing? This is what he marvels at. If you and I were there, we've probably been there. Many of you have siblings. You've been accused of many things that you have not done. The first thing that you do is try to get above in decibel, right? That's how you win the argument. If the law is on your side, you argue the law. I didn't do it. If the facts are on your side, you, you pound the facts. If neither's on your side, you pound the table. And Pilate is... This is the question. What sort of man is this who answers nothing? I've, I've tried many cases, he would say. And even if a man is as guilty as the day is long, he has a defense. And Jesus answered nothing. And so there are two questions that you and I have to ask and answer this morning. Why did he say Nothing. And how did he say nothing? I was sitting with one of our elderly uh, members earlier in the week, and I read this passage to her, and I said, why? why do you think Jesus stood there and said nothing? Well, he was humble. Yes, absolutely. Christ was, Christ was an humble man. It, right? He's the son of man. He's the one who came to earth uh, not to be served, but to serve always looking to the good of his neighbor. He is the one who perfectly fulfilled God's law by loving his neighbor as himself. Yes, he was humble. Well, I, I think too, he probably was trusting in God. Absolutely. Absolutely he was trusting in his father. There's something more. Why did Jesus remain silent? Well, listen to the words of Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What's happening? Well, Mark records it for you. Did you notice he didn't just use one verb? To describe the priests taking Jesus to Pilate, he used three. Here's the description. They bound him. Literally, they led him up. What's the picture? It's going up to the tabernacle. And they handed him over. Now, now what would we ordinarily use those verbs to describe? This is how the sacrifice would be carried out. What are you going to do? You're going to tie up your lamb, you're going to drag it along, and you're going to hand it over to the priest so that he can sacrifice it in your place. And what's the lamb going to do? Because it loves you, it's going to go along. It's, it doesn't know any better. It doesn't know what's about to happen to you. Here, Jesus said nothing. Why? Because he is the lamb. And the message to you is... No one is taking his life from him. 
Even at this moment, he is carrying the sins of his people upon him. And he's not resisting. He is going just as has been given him to do. Why is Jesus silent? Because he is the sacrificial lamb. And he is offering himself. But how did Jesus remain silent? You know that this would take strength beyond strength. You and I would be contemplating what's ahead. And even in, the, in Christ and his humanity, he, he understood what was coming. But very likely he didn't understand exactly how it would happen. Any man would be questioning, feverish, worried, wringing his hand, pulling on his tie, pulling on his, his clothing, hands sweating. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and Pilate is astonished at his silence. How could he do it? Well, Peter, the one from whom Mark learned all of this, explains it to us in chapter 2 of his epistle. For to this you have been called, O Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then these words, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How? How? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In this moment, his mind is totally set on his father. And you know, Peter, as he's recording his words, he could think about this because he also kept his mouth shut, didn't he? He was asked three times. Are you with him? No. Peter kept his mouth shut out of fear. Christ did not speak for confidence. In this moment, his mind is stayed on his father. In this moment, he is fulfilling all righteousness. In this moment, he is perfectly obedient to his father. Why? Because his heart is filled with love for his father. He says, even in his humanity, I may not fully know the way, but you do what I do know as your promise that this is the path of the Messiah. This is the path that you have set before me. And filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, he is enabled to stand even before wicked men and trust his Father. He is the one who is the pattern for the martyrs in Revelation 12, 11, when it says they love not their lives even to death. What are they doing? Looking to Christ. He knows that this is the purpose of his Father for him. And so you and I, we, we think about Christ's uh, uh, suffering and death, and we think, well, he died for me. Yes, yes, he did. But he also died for his Father. We, we love to talk about victimhood in our day. And if we... We even are given equations, aren't we, to go through this room and we could determine by math and numbers, right? We could determine who's the greatest victim, who has suffered the greatest travesties in life, who is the most oppressed. And we have intricate equations to determine these things. 
But if you look at Jesus as a victim in this scene, you are missing the point. Mark did not record this so that you would pity the Christ. He does not want your pity. He wants your worship. In this scene, Jesus is giving his life away. When asked why Jesus died, you and I must confidently say because he loved his father and he delighted to do the work his father gave him. And do you know what the work that his father gave him to do was? From before the foundation of the earth, God the Father entered into a covenant with the Son that he would lay his life down. This, in, in Christ's part, this is an act of worship. He's offering his life as a love gift so that he might purchase the people that the Father has given to him from eternity past. This is why in John 10, we like to think of Christ as the good shepherd. Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees there, he says, I am I'm the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. They go in and out through me. But he also said these words in verses 17 and 18 of John 10. Listen to what he says. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. But Jesus also knew that his suffering was not meaningless. Why can he do this? Because he knows that he will see the reward of his suffering. He knows that at the end of all things, that he will behold the faces of all whom he has redeemed. And what will be accomplished? The glory of the triune Godhead there. He laid down his life for his sheep. So we see, John, Mark is telling us that Jesus, here he is, the lamb that is led to slaughter. He is the lamb of God. But he teaches us another thing as well in verses 6 through 15. Jesus submitted, not just as the lamb, but he submitted as the substitute sufferer. Now notice how Mark records this, we get an editorial comment here at the very beginning. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. Oh, why, do we, why do we need to know that? Well, it, it sets up the whole context. This was a normal thing, but it also tells you a little bit about their culture. Uh, that this, is, this, is not a very, this is not a culture that really loves justice when they're letting guilty men go free. Something's amiss here. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. As we go through this, there are a few things that you need to recognize about the Christ. First of all, you need to see that Jesus is recognized as innocent. Jesus is recognized as innocent. 
Uh, First, he's recognized as innocent by Pilate. Uh, Look with me at uh, verse 14. Uh, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? You see, even there in his question to the people, you're crying out for him to be crucified. You're being ginned up uh, by these Pharisees and the, the, the leaders of the people. But why do you want him to be crucified? Why? What has he done? How is he guilty? Pilate recognized that these charges are totally fallacious. Look at verse 10. He perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Even as a judge having probably tried many cases, he he can tell that there's no substance to these charges. And so he declares that he finds no evil in him. So Pilate recognizes that he is is standing before an evil man, or a, a righteous man. And notice that he's also recognized as not guilty by the crowd. Go back to verse 14. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted, all the more crucify him. You see, there are no charges. What are you bringing against him? Is he he a rebel? Is he one who's stirring up trouble in your towns? What's the problem here? But they don't have anything to go on. So they simply cry out in their bloodlust, crucify him. He's recognized as innocent by Pilate. He's recognized as innocent by the crowd. He's recognized as innocent by the chief priests. They're uh, persecuting him out of envy. But there's a fourth group that recognizes him as innocent. It's you. You've read Mark's gospel. You've read Matthew's gospel. You've read Luke. You've read John. What charge do you bring against him? On what basis would you convict him of a capital crime? You cannot answer. Because there is none. You know that this man is perfectly innocent. We know that Jesus here then is recognized as innocent. But the next thing that you need to see is that Jesus is condemned for the guilty. Look with me at verses 11 to 13. He's seen as innocent and yet condemned as guilty. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. Barabbas is the one that they've determined to let free. Who is Barabbas exactly? Well, not only is he a man with an unfavorable name, who would actually name their child Barabbas. Uh, He's described to us in this text as a very unsavory character. Verse 7, look at it with me. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. So what kind of guy is he? One that you'd let your daughter marry? Probably not. He's a rebel. He's one who is stirring up strife in the city. But not only that, most importantly, what is he? He is a murderer. Listen, in every nation around the world, there is one crime recognized as deserving of death. And what is it? Murder. Here's a man who has actually committed a capital offense. 
John in chapter 18 verse 40 reminds us also that this man is a robber. Barabbas is an unsavory man. And yet, who do the crowd cry out for? Barabbas. Let him go. We want him. And so Pilate released Barabbas to them. We recognize then that Jesus, he is innocent. Nobody can find a charge against him. And yet he is declared guilty in Barabbas' place. Notice lastly here, uh, verse uh, 15. Pilate said to them, verse 14, what shall, why would evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I want you to turn over with me just and see this scene in its fullness. Turn over to John chapter 19. There's an important aspect of this sentencing here. Pilate was doing everything that he could to get out of this. He knew that if he gave in to the crowd, he was about to put an innocent man to death. He knew that. John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. Now notice this part. And he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Here, Pilate sits down, he takes his seat on the bench, robed in the robes of a judge, to pronounce a sentence. But, but here's something that the text doesn't mention that you and I have to take away. Christ has been declared guilty now by the crowd, by the chief priests. He's been declared guilty by, by Pilate. Everyone, every single one who has acknowledged him as innocent in one way or the other now proclaims him guilty. But there's one other who proclaims him guilty. It is God. God the Father sitting on his judgment seat, looking upon his own son, declares him guilty. And that's why it's important for you and me. That's the significance of this text. It doesn't matter if Pilate declares him guilty. It doesn't matter if the people think he's guilty. It doesn't matter if the chief priests think him guilty. He is declared guilty by his own father. And why is that? Why can this innocent man, the one whom we know has committed no crime, in him is no harm. He has perfectly fulfilled the law of God. How now can he be declared guilty by his own father? Because in this moment, he's bearing the sins of his people. He is guilty. He is guilty as sin. And now the judgment is just. He is delivered over to these wicked people to be crucified. As we think about this passage... 
it's important for us to see the role that you and I play in it. Where am I? Where, where's Brian McCullough in this scene? Am I a bystander? Am I the guy who would be over there on the side saying, guys, you've got this all wrong? Am I, am I the one? I, I would say, look, I'm, I'm not like Pilate, okay? I'm not the one who just goes along with the crowd. I'm actually one who has a moral compass. I have some moral fortitude. I'm not the guy that goes along to get along, okay? I'm not worried about popularity. I'm going to stand on principle. Most of us would be like Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd. That's how we live. But as Peter would have been recounting this scene in his own preaching ministry, and Mark, who would have been sitting at his feet listening to Peter preach, at some point, Peter would have reminded the people that here, Christ is suffering as the righteous for the unrighteous. In this scene, you are Barabbas. In this scene, you are the murderer, you are the rebel, you are the robber. In this scene, you are the one about whom the whole crowd ought to be crying out, crucify him. That's the one who's guilty. That's the one who shouldn't escape. Put him in jail. Put him on the cross. Crucify him. And what defense would you offer? You won't offer one because there is none. And as God in the end of time goes through and he it chronologically lays out all of your sins of thought, word, and deed against him, which he could do, there's no defense that you can make. Yes, I've done all of these, every single one of them. But the promise and the hope that this passage gives to you is that for everyone who has put his faith in Christ, here's the comfort. This is the only time that your sin will be punished. Right here. This is it. No more. At this place in time, roughly 33 AD, for all those who have put their hope and their faith in Christ, here you see the punishment of your sins. Never to be punished again. Christ has taken upon Himself all of the wrath of God, leaving none for you. So for the believer, you readily embrace the image of Barabbas. You say, yes, that's me. Yes, that's me. Why? Because Christ has taken my place he has borne my sins in His own flesh. He has died on the cross in my place. He has been declared guilty in my place. Jesus is the Lamb who willingly gave His life away. And for what purpose? So that He might redeem and take the place of every man who trusts in Him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we think about these words, we remember that 
not one of us would have come up with this plan. We're reminded from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that if the kings of the earth had known that this was the plan, if they could have perceived it by their wisdom, they never would have put Christ to death. They never would have done it. But we know that this has been your plan. And Father, in this plan, declaring your own son guilty in behalf of the people whom you had set apart from before the foundation of the earth, we find hope and we find comfort and we find rest. Why? Because we're not working now. We're not doing deeds of righteousness. We're not pursuing the good of our communities and the people around us so that we might gain entrance into heaven. But we do those things bringing heaven to earth as those who are already the citizens of heaven, who are already possessors of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are already in that kingdom. We already have it through Christ. He himself has brought it to earth and by his spirit made us partakers of it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning and ask that you would strengthen them with these thoughts, that the lamb has been slain once for all, suffering as the righteous for the unrighteous. And Lord, I pray for those who have not yet placed their faith in you. We pray that today would be the day of conversion. We ask for the glory of Christ's name. Amen.